So I don't really have any recollection of when my dad left, but my mom always told me it was somewhere around between five and six years old, and she always says, don't, don't say that your dad left. I told him to go. And shortly after that, um, my mom started replacing the alarm clock with Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and, and Roy Orbison and, and Bob Dylan. So I grew up in a house of, of music uh, with my two brothers. And, and shortly after, uh, she, she brought home one day, she worked in a bar and one day she brought home an acoustic guitar and that became like kind of like the thing that my, my brother and I um, used to sort of wrestle over who would the, who would they get the chance to play the guitar, and and it was always something that uh, we came from the same background, and it's something when I connected today, you know, it it is that Strumming, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, Roy Orbison, and it's it's been with me all along the road, and then you know, then the school started, and this in the sort of rough neighborhood I was living in had you know a, a youth club very close to to where we lived and after school I would go over there and, and uh, had a music teacher there and, and basically um, the only thing the music teacher taught me, you know, he, gave me he gave me the lyrics and, and, and the, the chords to Knocking on Heaven's Door with Bob Dylan and he says this is all you need, this is the foundation to everything and it, it, for me it kind of became the foundation of everything, it's almost like I say so many ways that, that every song I've written I've used the same five chords that Bob Dylan used in Knocking on Heaven's Door and then once in a while throw two more in it and then you have the entire Mike Tram catalog and, and you know little by little you know I started getting a little bit more into music and, and, and one day I got approached by um, a strange-looking man, the kind of man that you, you, your mom warns you about to never talk to this, but but it happened to be that the guy was living in the basement of our apartment building. And um, one thing that I'd noticed was that once in a while, like four or five guys would show up with long hair and, 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 and go down there in the basement and the door would be closed and I, I never knew what was going on in there. But I found out that, that this guy was sole res responsible for every music magazine in the late 60s and early 70s in Denmark. And these were the local bands that came down there, had the picture taken and doing interviews. And then one day he sees me walk, walk over to the youth club with the guitar and he asked me, Oh, you like music? Would you like to take it any further? And I said, well, yeah, I love music. And then he, he invited me down there and showed me what he was doing. And he basically was sitting there and making all these magazines, um, like like Cream Magazine, like Tiger Beat, just the Danish version of it. And of course, I started getting introduced to 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 the the international scene. And you know, he was really teeny bopper. So it was David Cassidy. It was Donny Osman and Basie the Rolls and stuff like that. So after school, I used to come down there and, and sat for a couple of hours and work with him. And my first task was to open all the letters that, that these young teenage girls would write in, thinking they were writing personally to Donny Osman and David Cassidy. And it, it basically became my sexual education because as I opened these letters, they would be like, Oh dear Donnie, I'm 15 years old, but should it be that I one, one time would be in your hotel room, this is what I would like us to do. And I kept going through letter on letter, and sometimes I would call my mom, Mom, I'm going to get come home late for, for dinner, and I'll just go through all this. And it, just, it became an introduction to the world that later on I was staying right in the middle when I was on stage with White Line in 1988 and the backstage was full of girls. It just 
it was I would never have put these two things together that that at age 14 I'll be sitting and reading these letters and then sometime around when I when I turned 15 um, he says tonight we're going to a concert I want you to see a live band in action but you cannot wear the kind of clothes you're wearing so he took me to one of the only shops in Copenhagen that sold the, the cool English rock clothes the stuff that came from London Carnaby Street and stuff like that the plat the platform boots at Sweet and Slade and Gary Glitter and Bowie and all those guys had on man and he bought me a pair like that and like you know flower power boot you know pants and, and like satin jackets and I told him I can't walk through my neighborhood in this they're gonna beat me up by the time they see me out on the street so the concert hall was the other side of the train station so I put the clothes in a plastic bag and when I got to the train station I went into I went into a, a, a toilet and changed and walked out the other way and into this concert hall and that night the band that was playing obviously was only drawing girls I was the only guy in the amongst 2,000 screaming girls there was like that classic classic screaming as loud as, as you know Shea Stadium with the Beatles you couldn't hear the band that night it was the Bay City Rollers in 1976 but the story is that the band that played before them was, was Danish, Denmark's own teen band and the next day in the newspapers it, it stood that the manager from Bay City Rollers had stolen Mabel was, which was the name of, of the band before young uh, lead singer and taking him all the way to Scotland where Basie de Rose had the camp and now these three guys from the band came into this little apartment that, that you know my friend and was doing the magazine and they're sitting there and asking if he could find a new singer for him and meanwhile you know my friend is sitting there looking at me and saying okay this is what's gonna happen here's your new singer and two weeks later on I went out to their house and, and, and did an audition totally unprepared because I never really wanted to be in music I just liked music but they, they put me into one of the bedrooms they were living in one house by themselves and there's a Marshall stack you know ready for Jimi Hendrix to come in there and they give me guitars says can you play and I'm sitting there with nothing but feedback and saying I don't know so they he says we'll, we'll get back to you and then an hour later after I've been sitting in the room fiddling with the guitar they come in and say we think we can make you work and and that night I stayed in that house and it was in the middle of the school summer vacation and the day before uh, school was about to start again I called my mom and says mom I'm not gonna come back to school and my mom was oh and then I talked to her about that this band wanted me to be the singer and stuff like that he says you know what on Monday let's go and talk to your school teacher so we went to talk to my school teacher and my mom goes as naive as she was is it possible for my son to get a two-week trial period with a rock band and the school teacher just looked at her and says, if your boy misses the first week of school, by no means can he catch up to the rest of the class. But my mom let me go and join the band and at age 15 and a half, I moved away from home. And since that day, I have lived 100%. 42 years later from rock and roll and never ever asked my mom for one little thing. My mom always used to say, well, it's one less plate of food on the table <laughs> and so you know we became we became like the first boy band sort of in Denmark but you know we were playing real guitars and stuff like that and after a few years we had just had too much of the way we were being treated in our home country 
that, that we had gotten this opportunity to move to Spain, which is in the southern part of Europe, and, and suddenly these four blonde guys moved down to Spain, you know, where we really stood out and we became like a teen sensation down there. I, I was now 18 years old, I was now writing all the songs from the band, I was now, you know, you know, leading the band in a different direction. I'd started getting really into the American bands, the American sound, Journey, Cheap Trick, REO Speedwagon, Eddie Money, and of course Van Halen, and, and completely slowly started molding my, my, my way around David Lee Roth, you know, in the peak time of his career. It happens to be that we're on the same record company as Van Halen, and they are coming into Spain to do promotion for the Fair Warning album, their fourth album, you know, in my opinion, their best album. And I asked the record company, he says, you think I can go meet the band? And they say, you know what, you speak some broken Spanish, we're gonna send you to the airport with three limousines, pick up the band and just be, be along with the band for the next three days. We're in there in Madrid doing radio promotion, a TV show and stuff like that. I go, are you kidding? So I go to the airport and, and, and stand there all by myself in my little leather jacket, my Van Halen t-shirt and my blonde hair that's just reached the shoulders. And the first guy that comes out from custom is David Lee Roth. They're the first guy they let go. And he must have been 20 feet tall when I looked at him. And you know, he's got sunglasses on and he looks really mean and he looks around and then he, and he sees me, he says, there's got to be a connection between this. So he comes up to me and says, who are you? And I go, well, 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 well the record company has sent me here to, to pick you up. I, you got a joint. I says, not really on me. I'm, I don't really smoke, but I'm sure I know somebody who can gather. And, you know. So for the next three days, I was with Van Halen. There weren't fans in front of the hotel rooms. Nobody really knew they were there and stuff like that. So I really got close to the band and had a really great time. And of course, at that moment, my band has just done their new album, but I changed the name of the band. The name Mabel, I didn't feel fitted anymore, so now I have I called the band Stuts, named after the, 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 the Stuts that sat in, in all the, uh, the, the, the leather jackets of the new wave of British heavy metal English fans, and I've read that in, the, in Melody Maker, New Musical Express. So I said, Stutz, man, that's great. So one, one day, uh, one night, I'm in Davy Roth's hotel room, and we're sitting there listening to some music, and I got in in a plastic bag and said, David, and this is my band, thinking that once I give this album to him, he's going to say, and you are the next support band on the Van Halen American tour. Instead, he takes the album up, and he says, he looks at it, and he says, Stutz, that ain't gonna work. They'll think you're the new village people. And it took me about a couple of days to understand what that really meant until the guys in, 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 uh, in the band says, maybe he thinks that we're a gay band. <laughs> and shortly after, we had actually met an American at a rock club in Madrid who said to us, I'll be your manager, you can live in my house in New York, and that's all I needed to know. And, and two months later, we sold everything we owned, and we flew to New York and arrived in New York City in the summer of 1982. The beginning of the 80s, the beginning of MTV, the start of David Letterman, when every rock club in New York were on fire. 
and it was absolutely amazing. And one night in November of 1982, I'm sitting in the dressing room in the club in Brooklyn called Lamorse Rock Capital of Brooklyn. I'm sitting there with my guys from Denmark and in through the door walks this guitar player. It's like 11 at night. He's got sunglasses on. His Stratocaster is sort of hanging half out his, his broken guitar case. And I, I said to myself, man, what a fool. And then we had this little, uh, little uh, backstage guitar amplifier that our bass player had built. And this guy goes, oh man, can I try one of those? And I thought to myself, yeah, let him plug in and make a fool out of himself because I thought we were the shit. And then he plugs his guitar in man, and he starts playing. And for the next half hour, me and the rest of the guys in the band, we just sat like this. And at that moment, I knew that that was the guy that I needed to play with. And my, the only thought in my head was, how quickly can I get rid of the other guys in my band? Because this is the guy, and that guy was Vito Brada. And that night became the start of White Lion. So in at the end of 1982, which basically was December, um, the guys in the band, I think, had had too much of living in New York. We hadn't had any money for for half a year. We didn't make any money on the shows, but I was having a blast. I was having the best time of my life. So we go back to Denmark, and, and shortly after we're back in Denmark, you know, I break up the band, and I can even, I can feel it's itching in me. It says I have to go back to America, and and and. Uh, my mom had nothing. We came from a very poor little family and I said to my mom, I need to get out of here. I need to get back to the USA. It's the only place where, where, where I can have my hair grown long and people not yelling at me on the street and things like that. People just look at me and say, dude, you must be a rock star. And you know, it was just one of those things. So you know, my mom helped me get like a like a nine hundred dollar bank loan, or in a local bank that I went up there and I bought like a one way ticket to New York. And I came back in March of nineteen eighty three. And the first night, I went out to a club, and this girl came up to me and gave me my gave me a phone number. And before I even looked at the phone number, I just said. Hey, this is what rock and roll is all about. I didn't even have an opening line and she's already given me her phone number. But then I looked and it said Vito Brada. And that night I called him and says and and for like one hour just bullshitted my way about oh man, you know, I'm so big in Europe, man, I got all these plans and stuff like that. And he did the same thing. And the next day we got together and we started talking about this plan. And there was just something from the start that, you know, we just felt that this was meant to happen. I mean, those, you know, I'm a, I was like a firecracker, man. It was like I had so much energy and things like that. And and you know, shortly after we we we, we put the first version of White Line together, which was basically two of the guys from Vito's band, and and we started out by playing all the songs that I had from my band, um, and and uh, little by little. The other guys fell, fell, fell from the band, and Vito and I would always return to, oh, it's you and I again. Then we would get two new guys to play bass and drums, and then they would fall off. Meanwhile, Vito and I and I were writing the songs and stuff like that, and finally getting to that point where we had all the, the 10, 12 songs that we were going to take into the studio. And um, 
at that time our managers, you know, have made this deal with, 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 with a producer who owns a studio in Frankfurt, Germany, and, and he sends us over there and locks us in this studio out in an industrial area in Frankfurt, Germany, completely bored to shit, but 100% able to concentrating on the album. And we come back in, 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 in February of, of, of 1984, get signed to Elektra Records only two weeks later for a massive record deal and, and start all the preparation, you know, meet with the promo department, do the legendary photo shoot in front of, of, of the library, I think it's on, on, on 34th Street in, in Manhattan at night and, and things like that and get ready for that and then suddenly one day we get this legendary phone call from our manager says we got good news and we got bad news what do you want to hear first and then Vito goes give us the bad news and then our managers goes electric records have decided not to release the album and basically let you go of the contract but the good news is you get to keep the money of course we were devastated we, 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 we couldn't understand what had happened here and, and suddenly you know we have we have all this money in the bank but our baby our album the fight to survive album is just it's just lying on the shelf and we can't control it so almost a whole year goes by where the band is sort of just playing the clubs um, the rhythm sections in, in the band leaves the band for the second time and we get we, we get Greg D'Angelo in on drums and that time we got Dave the Beast on, on bass and we start playing the tri-state area or clubs here and there and stuff like that and then one day our manager says to us that they got a deal going in Japan that they were able to license the fight to survive. We didn't understand what that mean, but he says we got we got a record deal for fight to survive in Japan, and here is that White Lion starts in Japan, and bit by bit the local record stores, which of course existed in those days in Jersey, in New York, and and all these places, started importing the fight to survive album from America from from Japan back to America and we started building this up and the same thing was happening in Europe it got imported to France to Germany to England and, and bit by bit White Line becomes like your number one on the import chart and starting having a following on the other side of the water meanwhile we're a local Staten Island Brooklyn band and bit by bit bit by bit which was happening in those days the band is starting having this is a signed band, this is a band with an official album and things like that you know and then James Lomenza comes into the band and finally now we are the complete band that tours around and plays as much as we can and at the end, uh, at the end of 86 Michael Wagner who later became our producer both on, on the Pride album and on the Big Game album contacts our managers and says I like to work with the band and at that time we don't have a new record deal and, and Michael says come out to Los Angeles I'll find the money I got the studio I got the apartments for you guys to live in and basically by the time we start recording the Pride album we don't have a record deal yet 
but our managers is working with Atlantic Records and stuff like that and, and, and sort of almost just at the end of recording uh, pr the Pride album the record deal with, with Atlantic Records get, get signed and, 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 and you know the whole thing starts up the preparation for the album the first video the first tour together with Ace Freely and Y&T then another t uh, club tour where we go around and then, then we got jump on with KISS in November of, of 87 and only about five months after the album comes out does Wade starting making a bit of movements on the radio and that is because one single radio station in Minneapolis decides to give it a little bit of a boost and the audience are responding and then back in those days radio station had their weekly trade paper that would write this song is doing really good audience responding and everybody was reading and the next week a station in San Diego did the same thing with a single and got the same kind of response and after that it became wildfire prairie fire across the country and suddenly we're onto a big tour in Europe sold out tour and, and I remember three sold out shows at the legend, legendary Marquee Club in London and the first night I was sharing hotel rooms with my manager and during the night I can hear him a little bit on the phone and suddenly he starts screaming we got it three months with Aerosmith starting in March and then it's just from there and I don't think that went about three weeks into the Aerosmith tour our manager shows up we've just gotten a commitment for ACDC to start another three months tour with ACDC two days after you finish with Aerosmith and after that we were selling 100,000 albums a week and everything just became a crazy world where we, we didn't even have time to think it we just had to we just had to to make sure we could catch our breath and and, and our hair wasn't gonna fall out from all the the hairspray and all that kind of thing